0: Welcome to Brain in a Vat. Uh, Today, we have Professor Graham Oppie, who is a world-renowned expert in philosophy of religion. He's uh, based in Australia at the University of Monash. And uh, Graham, we'd like you to start with a thought experiment.
1: Okay, so um, I'll give you the thought experiment and then we'll consider what the consequences of it might be. So imagine that you're traveling to a new kingdom, So you're coming down the hills into a valley. And the reputation of the kingdom is that it's ruled by a benevolent, wise, and powerful king who ensures that it's a wonderful place. As you're coming down the hills, you can see the the kingdom. It's not a huge kingdom, but you can see it spread out before you. And from a distance, it looks glorious. Um, Green rolling fields. Nice cities um, shining in the sun, and so on. And so you're filled with expectation as you cross the border into the kingdom. You walk on a little bit, and to your horror, you notice that there are bodies hanging from the lampposts men, women, children, lining the route that you're taking. And so you reconsider. It doesn't seem like it can be true that the kingdom's ruled by a powerful, wise, and benevolent ruler. Perhaps this is an outlying area. Perhaps he doesn't know. Perhaps he's not well-informed in the suitable sense. He's not, he's not wise the way that he was reported to be. Perhaps he's not powerful. Perhaps he knows about the bodies. He knows about the killing, but there's nothing that he can do to prevent it. So maybe he's actually not powerful. Maybe he knows about the bodies and he could prevent the killings, but he doesn't. In which case, presumably we're going to conclude that he's not so good. Maybe he's morally indifferent, he doesn't care. Maybe actually he's enthusiastic. Maybe he's behind the killings. What we're not going to do as we continue walking into the, into the kingdom if we don't run away immediately is that it's clearly not under the control of a ruler who's all three of powerful, wise, well-informed and good. Okay, so that's the the thought experiment. And the idea is that you should agree with the judgment that I reached. Um, If you are in those circumstances, you should come to the conclusion that the ruler clearly doesn't satisfy the description that you were given when you were entering the kingdom.
2: So the idea behind the thought experiment is that I'm assuming I've got it right here when I say that the sovereign is supposed to be an analogy to God. Um, And the idea would be that, well, if we think this about the the sovereign, if we think he's either not all good or knowing or powerful, at least one of the three, then we would think that in a world, which is, governed by an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good God, we wouldn't expect to see evils in the world, like people hanging from lampposts. So those people hanging from lampposts, I'm assuming, are similar to, to you know, the evils that we see on a daily basis. We see men, women, and children dying, right? You know, and, and at the moment, maybe not so many children, but we see a lot of COVID cases um, and, and other types of evils in the world. Um the idea would be that therefore there can't be that kind of a god, just like we would say that therefore there can't be that kind of a sovereign in that in that in that state.
1: Right. So I guess a year or so ago I would have used as my example rather than the bodies hanging from the lamppost. I would have just talked about the various genocides that we saw in the twentieth century, you know, the Belgians in the Congo in the beginning of the twentieth century and there's more genocide in the Congo even now. So uh, but all over the world. Um, so, yes, that, that is the idea. Uh, if, if the claim is that our world is ruled by an all-powerful, all-knowing and all-good all God, that claim seems to be challenged by, the, say, the evidence of COVID, right? That will, that will do in just the same way that the view that the sovereign in the kingdom is wise and good and powerful in control Um, this challenged by the bodies hanging from the lampposts
0: so it seems like the two different kinds of evils that we've described those let's say performed by free agents so when people go out and murder and rape and commit genocides that's a certain kind of evil and then we have these sort of natural evils like uh, earthquakes tsunamis and things like covid um does the you know the theist might want to say, well, it's important that people have free will uh, and that God, you know, surrenders to some greater good by providing people this free will and he will not interfere with their, their freedom to go and cause these, these evils to others. Do they have a a similar case um, on the natural front, which seems to have nothing to do with the free agent? Okay. So I'm
1: still going to think about my initial thought experiment a little bit here. Uh, It's It doesn't seem very compelling that the sovereign is going to say, ah, yeah, I know about it, it's bad, I could stop it, but, you know, there are some people who want to do it, so I'm going to, you know, it's important that I let them make their choices about what to do. Um, There are certain things that we kind of naturally think uh, are limits to the amount of freedom that should be granted And we think that it's perfectly fine for the courts to lock up the perpetrators, for example, that if you wanna go around um, hanging people from lampposts, the right thing is for the rest of us to be protected from you by putting you in prison. So we don't actually think that if we're thinking about it from the point of view of of a earthly sovereign, that freedom's worth that much. It's not a significantly, it's not a sufficient good to justify inaction on the part of the sovereign. And so you might think the same is going to be true in the case of God, that in the face of genocide, or um, it's just not sufficient, right? The good of freedom is just not sufficient to, to justify inaction on God's part. Okay, So that's, that's just on the kind of one side of what you said. On the other side, there is this question about natural evils. I mean, you mentioned, I can't remember what your examples were, hurricanes and tornadoes and so on. But there's, I I just think about animal suffering. There, There have been animals capable of suffering and undergoing suffering for, I don't know, maybe 300 million, 500 million years. The number of animals that have suffered is absolutely enormous. And almost none of that has got anything to do with us. We've been around for a couple hundred thousand years maybe out of that time. So it doesn't look like free will of us or any other agents is relevant to all that suffering. And so you've got your work cut out. Um, There's got to be some other story that you're going to tell about why um, things were set up by the ruler of the universe to have that incredibly long history of suffering.
2: So suppose we think to ourselves, okay, all right, so free will is not going to do the work that we want it to do, um, but maybe the analogy is wrong. Maybe the analogy is a bad analogy between the sovereign and God because maybe God is, is much more knowledgeable than any sovereign could be, and he foresees <clears throat> down the line some reason why all the suffering needs to take place whereas the sovereign wouldn't see that. So maybe there's some mysterious reason why um, various animals and people need to suffer, which ultimately results in some good um, that we're unaware of and the sovereign would be unaware of, but God knows about.
1: Right. So I think that that's a more promising line for theists to take. I don't think that you want to put the, the goods down the track. I think you just want to say that there are goods that the that depend upon you wouldn't there wouldn't be these goods were there not this suffering and okay we have a lot of trouble seeing what those goods might be but given that there's an omnipotent omniscient perfectly good God in control we can be confident that there are such goods so it's sort of running the argument backwards in a way um, and you might think that actually it's kind of hard to argue with that, at least initially. Think about some really awful case, like um, torture of a young child who then dies. How plausible is it that there's a good for the child that arises out of the suffering and the dying? It's not enough that there would be good for somebody else or something else. That can't justify the, the torture and suffering of the child. But where does the child get the good and how does it get it? How can it possibly be that there's some good for the child that depends upon their being tortured and killed? That seems really hard to believe to me.
0: So I suppose the theist has a couple of moves. The one is, you know, to have recourse to further supernatural entities. So to say, well, you know, this world may be full of all this immense suffering, but don't worry, there's an afterlife where you get to bathe in the glory of God and uh, it's an eternity of, you know, um, absolute splendor. Um, So, you know, all of this sort of suffering will just pale in significance. And so it really was good for the child to die in this way based on the sort of um, grand plan. And the the other move is to try and have a stranger account of morality, I suppose. So some of this stuff looks, you know, very much at odds with a rights-based account, because you can kill people for greater goods, you know, so maybe God looks like some kind of utilitarian. Or there's some other move, which is that, well, whatever God does is by nature good because it is done by God. Um, And you don't have recourse to any kind of uh, human uh, moral account.
1: So I think you don't want to underplay the awfulness of the suffering of the child, right? And I don't think that a way to goods is a good, is a good story to tell, right? Um, even if what comes later is really great, it's very hard to see how it could depend upon the child being tortured and murdered, that what the child's going to miss out on it. Um, that, that, that seems a very odd way to set things up. Uh, th- and there, <clears throat> there are various questions about this afterlife, but uh, if in the afterlife there's no suffering and there's only good stuff, why not just make that and skip the rest of it? Right? That's a bit hard to fathom. Even if God was a utilitarian i mean for the reasons that i just gave it's unclear how you're going to get a justification for the, the the torture and murder of the child because it's unclear how to get the goodness in the later state to depend upon
0: that the move is to say well when you say that a bad thing happened to the child you know when it died or was uh you know slaughtered um and that's just an incorrect account of uh, of goodness um because it happened and because it was done under the auspices of God, it was necessarily good will be the move. they'll just say that you have a a human understanding of morality. When we talk about omnibenevolence as this, we mean the godly kind, um, not your manly kind.
1: So I reckon that we all know that the torture and murder of a small child is a terrible thing. Uh, If, god's morality says something other than that then that's just a bad mark against god it turns out that god can't possibly be perfectly good maybe god's morally indifferent maybe god's evil right but uh it's it's got to be that uh if you're in a position where you can present you, you can prevent the murder the torture and murder of a small child at no cost to yourself right then you should do it We would expect nothing less of people and we would think that, I mean, our ideas about good and evil are just, or good and bad, are just represented in the judgment that we make there. So I think you're going to struggle to, um, to make it plausible that we should be calling God good if somehow or other God's moral views, if you can call it that, um endorse just letting children be tortured and killed
2: suppose the theist uh, doubles down on that um using using an idea that mark suggested before which is they could just say well by definition whatever god does is good and so by definition uh you know, just just because you can't see it, well, that's just tough. You know, this is your puny human mind. God knows, right? And 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 by definition, because God has ordained that that child is is tortured and murdered, um, it is good.
1: So that I guess that doesn't sound very plausible to me. Um, one question I would like to ask someone who wanted to run that line is, so So, how much more do you need before you decide that actually there's too much suffering in the world? I mean, how many more 100 million years of animal suffering do you need? Or how many more children do you need to be um, tortured and killed before you're going to go back from the position that you've just taken up? Do you think that no matter how bad the world was um it couldn't possibly count as evidence against there being a good creator
0: so i mean one of the things that you allude to is this idea that the problem of evil is used as a a knockdown argument for the existence of god um but it might just be the existence of a certain kind of god So I take it you could have, let's say, a deist God who uh, creates everything, sets the wheels in motion, and then sits back and says, well, I've done my bit. You know, if horrible things happen, volcanoes erupt, people kill each other, you know, I'm not not going to to play any role in that whatsoever. And you might then think that that God is not omnibenevolent, um, but, uh, you know, nonetheless is a God.
1: Right. So it seems like in the face of the argument, the way that it was set up, you have several options. You could reduce the amount of power that you attribute to God, or you could reduce the amount of knowledge, let's say. I mean, something along those lines that you attribute to God, or you could reduce the amount of goodness. And any of those things, if you make enough reduction, will make it square with the data, or you could re- suppose it all three uh, reduced. So your example of a deus god might be one who makes the world and then goes on to doing something else. So it's not that um, the the deus god is kind of awful. It's just that this is the, this is what it does. It makes universes and it just keeps making one after another and it never stops to see how they turn out. A different thought would be that maybe um, maybe there are two gods one who's good and one who's evil and they're fairly evenly matched and so you get you end up with the universe that's got lots of good things in it and lots of bad things in it because the two gods are kind of at war with one another in, in the in the the world that they create uh, that's not historically that was not an unpopular view i mean, with the eventual triumph of christianity it became heresy and ceased to be a popular view, but in the ancient, in the, in the ancient world, it was not an unpopular view. Um, there's also, I guess, the, the I, fewer people, I think, go for the reduction in power view that God knows what's going on and cares about it, but can't do anything about it. Um, but but, the, but there are all these options. And it doesn't look as though any considerations about the amounts and kinds of evils in the world are going to um, refute the other hypotheses that you might make. As you said, the thing that's supposed to be refuted here is the idea that there's an omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good God.
2: So my preferred solution is a pantheistic solution. Um, so on theism, God is a person; he's an agent, all good, all knowing, and all powerful, and so can do things about evil, right? So he has the power to do it. He wants to do it because he's all, all, all good and he's all knowing. So he knows about the evil. Um, and the result is that, well, he should do something about it. We think he, he would do something about it. But on the pantheistic version of God, God is not a person. Um, and he didn't create the universe so much as he just is the universe. Um, and the universe and God would then be identical. So they would be overlapping Venn diagrams. Whereas on the theistic view, God would be sort of this larger circle, and then the physical universe would be inside a smaller circle inside that larger circle. So on the pantheistic view, um, the existence of evil is fine because, well, the evil just is identical with God amongst all the other things that are identical with God too. You, you don't have this, this problem of, God being all good, all knowing, all powerful, because God isn't a person. So he would lack all of those attributes, and so the problem of evil wouldn't go through.
1: Right, and there are other views that you could take as well. You might think of God as impersonal but not pantheistic, more in the way that uh, um, Brahman, perhaps. or I mean, there, there are various Eastern religions where you have things that look more like principles than people that are kind of the, the, the fundamental um, object of um, the religion. And those don't look like they're particularly going to be threatened by the versions of the problem of evil that we've been thinking about either.
2: So I've got two two questions, clarificatory questions. Um, so the one is that um, we talk about evils and, um, But I I think philosophers might use the term evil in a different sense to the way everyday people use the term generally. Um, I I thought, I, I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. So that's my first question. And the second question is, do you think that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of God in that theistic sense? of a all good all knowing all powerful person um, or do you think it's it just provides some kind of inductive or abductive evidence against the existence of god so by inductive or abductive i just mean that it provides some suggestive evidence rather than conclusive deductive evidence
1: okay so first of all on the question about evil you might some people might think that evil is kind of defined as something like an affront to God. So if there's no God, there's no evil. That's definitely not the way that philosophers think about evil. A different thing that you might think is that evils are somehow <laughs> really horrendously bad things, and that's also not the way that um, philosophers are thinking about evil in this context. Any pain, for example, is an evil on this view. And one way to one way to see th- The way that philosophers are coming at this is to think in the beginning on the the theistic story that we're thinking about there was perfection and nothing else right and yet at later stages indeed as soon as we get creation we have imperfection and you might think of just imperfection as evil right and then there's this puzzle about how you get imperfection from perfection. Uh, a problem I think is underrated. It's a kind of, it's very hard to get your head around how that could have happened, right? But that, that gives you a sense of what evil is here. Evil is just anything that's that's not perfect, really. Um, okay, so that was the, the first question. The second question was about the form of the argument. So some people have thought, that there's just a logical inconsistency between some fact about evil, um, that there is evil, or that there's horrendous evil, or that there's so much horrendous evil, or whatever, but some fact about evil, some facts about God, um, that God's omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly good, and some kind of obviously true things that link together the properties that God's supposed to have and um, the evil the claim about evil whatever it is so just to give you an example John Mackey thought that the contradiction was just the mere existence of evil with God's being omnipotent and perfectly good and then the further claims were that an omnipotent being there are no limits to what an omnipotent being can do and that a perfectly good being would eliminate evil as far as it could And you put those together and you do indeed get a contradiction so that's the that's a, and there are more complicated arguments you can make where you add in more attributes and maybe you bump up the, the fact about evil a bit as well. Before I say something about that, let me go on to the other kind of argument. So the other kind of argument is that while there's no logical contradiction here, um, the best kind of explanation of the amounts and kinds of evils that we find in the world is going to be one in that includes as part of it that there's no such thing as an omnipotent omniscient and perfectly good being right so that's something like a kind of from the evils that we see an in inference to the best explanation is going to not take you to god it's going to take you to um some other kind of explanation of why the world is the way it is and why it's got the the distribution of goods and evils that it's got okay let me go back to the to the logical argument to the first kind of argument uh, the particular example that i gave you uh, i don't think that the two linking premises that mackie had are true I certainly theists typically disbelieve them both and if that was your argument they would have an easy out they would just say but look there are limits to what omnipotent beings can do they can't do what's impossible for example, and there are certain kinds of goods you can't have without evils, right? There's no overcoming adversity without adversity and overcoming of adversity can be a good thing. And maybe worlds are better if they've got some of that in it than if you have neither the adversity nor the overcoming of adversity, right? So as a logical argument, that doesn't work. I don't think there's any other logical argument that works better than that one. There are better arguments than Mackie's, but I'm not convinced that any of them work
0: part of what you've alluded to is we've got different ways of trying to explain the world that we live in. So we can accept that we live in a world that has lots of suffering and it has some, some pleasure as well. Um, and we've got a choice between, uh, one where we posit a supernatural deity. Um, and we have one where we say there isn't such a deity. Are there any reasons to prefer one account over the other? So,
1: uh, if you, um... Okay, so I think there's no deity. I think that all there is is natural reality, at least as far as the causal stuff goes. So we can, sort of simplifying views about contemporary cosmology, the universe is all there is. That's the... um, And if you've got that view and you think that um, the distribution of suffering that we find in a world is is more or less inevitable in the kind of world that we've got if life emerges and life did emerge and there's a long period of evolution and you 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 have this arms race for resources, it's kind of inevitable that there's going to be a lot of animal suffering. So it's not it's not very that, that evidence, the evidence of animal suffering is not at all implausible on a kind of naturalist Hypothesis on the view that what there is is the universe, but it did look a bit implausible on the, the theistic story because it's very hard to find a good reason. Maybe you can postulate some, you know, there there are goods we just don't know about that God has in mind, but that's a kind of a theoretical cost. You've added more stuff to your story. We've got the natural universe, you've got God, and then you've got all these goods that none of us can see, right? Because I don't think there's any agreement amongst theists about why God lets the animals suffer. Right? I don't think that 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 people think, "Oh, we know why why God does that." So when when we're thinking about evil, it looks like it fits and and the goods as well. They fit kind of naturally in the naturalist story. They don't seem to fit without cost into the theistic story. And so that gives you a reason for preferring the idea that the naturalist story is true and the theistic story isn't. It's only a small reason. What you really want to do is you want to consider all the different bits of evidence that you might take into account that might favour one view over the other and weigh them all up. But if we just focus on the evil, it looks as though that probably favours the naturalist view a bit.
0: So what are the the best cases that the theist has then for saying you ought to believe my version over the naturalist? In other words, saying the naturalist doesn't have a good explanation for, you know, a particular way that the world is um, something along those lines.
1: Right. So you want me to give you an example of something that theist might propose. So I guess if you look at the history of how this goes, um, different arguments, Different kinds of arguments have been popular at different times in history in the last thousand years. There was a period when cosmological arguments were kind of all the rage. Then there's a long period when it was arguments for design. And then there's a period when it's moral arguments. So let's go back and look at one of the cosmological arguments. So why is there a universe at all? What, What explains the existence of the universe? Theists have a kind of ready answer to this. It was made by God. Uh, it's not so clear, at least many people have thought, what the the naturalist is going to say. After all, the naturalist doesn't think that there's an external cause of the universe. If the naturalist thinks the universe is all there is, the naturalist can't be thinking that there's a causal explanation. So it looks as though there's something that the theist can explain that the naturalist can't, namely the existence of the universe. And if the cost of getting that explanation is postulating God, it's not clear that that's a bad deal, right? So there's, the, there's one kind of argument that theist might give. It's not an argument that I'm going to find persuasive, but I, I've given it to you.
2: I quite like Nagel's response to that. I think it's Nagel. He says, you're asking for one explanation too many. Um, You know, if if you cite the Big Bang, well, that seems good enough. Rather than saying, okay, so what caused the Big Bang? He'd say, well, you're asking for one explanation too many.
1: Right. So the question will be how to think about that beginning point, right? So the Big Bang is a kind of vague label for some stuff that we don't know very much about. Uh, we have a kind of pretty accurate theory about what happened after there was a period of inflation quite early on in the first, second or so of the universe. But before that, it's kind of uncharted territory. We don't have any theories or any evidence that tell us what the universe was like back there. But if we assume that we've got a kind of series of states of the universe, maybe beginning with the first one, what's that, fir- well, you know, where did that first state when the things in the first state, where did they come from? It doesn't look like it's a request for um, one, you know, a kind of an explanation too many uh, because all the other states have an explanation. We explain all the states in terms of earlier states and then we get back to the first state and it doesn't, it's not clear that there's anything special about the first state um, that means that it doesn't need an explanation. My own preference, although I'm not sure how strongly I prefer this, is to say that the first state's necessary. It couldn't have been otherwise. And now we can explain why it is because it must be. Um, And that's something that theists are also going to say when you get to God. God made the first state. Why does God exist? Because God must. Now it looks as though the theist doesn't have an advantage anymore because We've both got an initial thing that we say exists of necessity, and they've gone an extra step, and it looks like Nagel's now right. It's a step too far.
0: So one of the arguments that's become quite popular is the the fine-tuning argument. So the notion that the universe is calibrated in such a manner that if one one of the many laws of the universe were slightly off, the whole thing wouldn't be there. Um, and that this doesn't seem like the kind of thing that could have just occurred um, you know, randomly, uh, it looks like the kind of sophisticated system that was made by a creator, uh, that they applied some sort of wisdom to calibrating everything uh, so perfectly. And that, you know, um, because this couldn't have occurred otherwise, or why it's incredibly unlikely to look at otherwise we must posit a, a creator.
1: So I guess there's a few questions about the physics that I wanna ask at this point. So we don't have finished physics. In fact, physics is in a kind of unsatisfactory state because we have two really super theories, quantum mechanics and general relativity that are inconsistent with one another. And for many years, actually since quite early in the 20th century, physicists have been looking for some grand unified theory that would, that would enable you to put some successor theory to quantum mechanics and general relativity together in a sort of coherent way we don't have that so one of the things that we don't know is whether there will be all of these finely calibrated values in the successor theory i mean in the theories that we've got now there are these values that you just kind of have to put in by hand and it really matters that they're very precise if you varied them just a little bit the universe looks you know either looks like it just kind of blows up instantly um, so quickly that it forever it consists of nothing but empty space or it collapses in on itself after a tiny fraction of a second and so there's no chance for life or anything to emerge. It's what There is this question, we don't know what future physics is going to look like. So put that to one side and suppose that in the future physics there's going to be all of these values that have to go in by hand. There's still a question, or there's still several questions, but there's still this question, whereabouts in the evolution of the universe do the values get fixed, right, so these values, there are certain values that we've got, right, there seem to be two possibilities, either they're fixed from the very beginning, or there's some point at which you kind of get this transition from the values aren't fixed yet to they are fixed. If there's a transition of that kind, then I'm not sure there's anything left for the naturalist to explain, right? There was a, there's this evolution at a certain point, the values, there's a, I don't know, what do you call it, a kind of phase transition or something like that, and certain values get fixed, and it is just a matter of chance what values you end up with. You could have had all kinds of different values, but you didn't you got this particular set. And that's the end of the explanation. On the other hand, right, wind it back to the very beginning. If the values are there at the very beginning and we say, as I said before, that the initial state's necessary, then there are no alternatives. The values had to be as they are. It might seem kind of slightly odd that they had to be as they are, but um, that would be the consequence of taking that view, right? So, one line, which I quite like, is to say either the values are fixed at the beginning, they had to be that way, or it happens by, by chance, but there's nothing wrong with that. Now, there are lots of naturalists who don't like either of those options. And so a much a kind of very popular response is to say, well, look, for all we know, there are lots and lots of universes and the values get set kind of randomly in the universes so out there there are lots of universes that blow up or that collapse very quickly but there are lots and lots of universes and there are some in which the values are right for life and of course we wouldn't be here having this conversation if the values in our universe weren't amongst those universes where the values are right for life so that's a kind of a different kind of response one which i'd prefer to avoid though um, it's there as an option.
2: So I'm curious about a technical problem uh, with the view that that the starting state of the universe is necessary. Um, so the technical problem is this. Suppose that the starting state of the universe, as you say, the values that are set in that universe are set from the beginning and that is a necessary state. And suppose we compi- combine that view with the view that the world is determined. In other words, what happens at any given time determines what happens um, after that time. There's only one way the world can go. Um, then it seems like you've got an entirely deterministic universe in the sense that there is only one way it could have been. And because the starting point is necessary, there's only one way the world could be. But we think at least that, that the world could have been different. And so that view would be um, at odds with the view that the world could have been different.
1: Right, good. So um, I think that you would only go for this view if you also have the view that the kind of state transition is indeterministic, which is the view that I favour. And there are there are two reasons at least why you might favour that view. One of them is that quantum mechanics kind of suggests that the world's indeterministic. I mean, not every interpretation of quantum mechanics does but I think the most plausible ones do the other thing is that if you want to suppose that there's free will you've got a a, a, of a kind of libertarian kind it's got to be that the transitions are indeterministic so I mean that's not a reason that weighs heavily with me I'm much more persuaded by the quantum mechanics um, consideration but either way uh, I think that In order to take the view that I took, you want to also be taking the view that there's indeterminism. In fact, um, where this view comes from is not from thinking about um, God. It's just from thinking about modality and thinking about what would be a nice theory of modality, but one where... um, the actual world, every 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 possible world shares some history with the actual world, and you get divergences only because chances play out differently. That gives you a very neat theory of modality. Admittedly, it turns out to have a lot less possibilities than most people think there are, and it also makes it very hard to work out what's possible and what isn't. But from the point of view of metaphysics, I think it's a kind of nice account of...
2: Yeah, I would really like other possible worlds with different sets of laws of nature. You know, I'd la- I'm a science fiction writer, so I, th- that, right. that intrigues me, right? But on your view, that wouldn't be possible because the laws of nature, I'm assuming, would be part of that initial state that's necessary.
1: So this is kind of metaphysical necessity, but there is uh, a metaphysical possibility. There's still um, imaginative possibility doxastic possibility, you know what you can reasonably believe, or epistemic possibility, what's possible given the evidence that we've got so far, there's nothing that's going to stop you from writing science fiction stories. It's just that the only consequence will be that they're not metaphysical possibilities on this view.
0: So Richard Dawkins had an argument against the fine-tuning account, which is he says, you know, if we think about the universe as this perfectly calibrated hi-fi set, where all the different levers have to be at these correct numbers. And the way of explaining a way out of this is to posit a knob-twizzler. He says the knob-twizzler must be that much more complicated. You know, they had the ability to set the, the hyper system in motion. And so to get out of a complicated problem, we've created a further complicated problem for ourselves. We haven't explained the existence of this you know, infinite um, you know, um, impressive being which has the ability to make universes.
1: Right. So there's got to be some complexity in the background because presumably there's um, something, I mean, if we're thinking of the the knob twiddler as a person, then they've got a plan and it's an incredibly detailed plan and they've weighed up all these alternative possibilities and seen that if they set all the knobs this way, they'll get a universe with life in it, but actually in the kind of surrounding area, if any of the deviate a little bit, they won't. And that sounds very complicated. What Theist will say is though that the the being that has the plan is simple, even though the plan is obviously highly complex. The being is simple, and uh, you might wonder how a simple being could have such a complex plan. Uh, and to that extent, you might worry that there's that you know Dawkins is right, but Theists typically seem not very moved by the Dawkins argument, in my experience, because they they think it's there's something rather simple about supposing that God's infinitely wise and infinitely powerful and infinitely good. There are no limitations on God, and of course, if you're an unlimited being, it's going to be easy for you to pick out the the world in which the dials are set just right.
0: Yeah, on this, friends, I sort of wonder about. You know, Occam's razor generally and, and this and ability to persuade people. You know, if the philosopher sort of says, well, we must prefer simple accounts, there's an ambiguity there because, in other words, someone who has raised a theist will say, well, this is a simple account. You know, I've, I've always accepted that there is this, uh, this God and your explanations um, seem incredibly complicated to me. You have to explain quantum physics to me. That seems incredibly complicated. You know, the God answer is a simple one. Um, so there's some equivocation about the term, I wonder if you had thoughts on that. And the other one is about methods of persuasion. In other words, are there better and worse ways to have this conversation?
1: So the the question about simplicity is tricky. If you've read uh, Richard Swinburne's book, The Existence of God, he makes a lot of simplicity judgments uh, in setting up his uh not altogether different from mine, a kind of abductive argument for God. It's couched in a Bayesian framework, but it's basically the same sort of idea. And he thinks that um, the simple things, the simple measures are zero, one, and infinity. And so long as you're attaching those quantities to all the aspects of God, then you're coming up with something that's really simple. That seems to me to be not a very good account of simplicity, but the thing that I want to offer in its place uh, may not seem much better. So <laughs> um, I think that the right thing to do is to think about theories. So think about theories as kind of sets of sentences. Um, and when we've got two total theories, so just let the theists write down everything they believe. Let me write down everything I believe, and let's hope that we get two consistent stories. I mean, they'll conflict with one another in all kinds of ways because there'll be lots of things they disagree about and then there will be two questions one question will be which one of the accounts is simpler and the other one will be which one fits all of the data better where we might as well think of the data as just all the stuff we agree on I mean it doesn't really matter too much what the data is because we tend not to disagree about what what we're going to call data for the purposes of this okay so what does what makes for simplicity well there's at least three dimensions to this one is how many different kinds of things you suppose there are maybe how many things you think there are outright but certainly how many different kinds of things another thing is what ideas do you need in order to express the theory if you need to completely express it if you need fewer ideas that's advantage of simplicity and the third thing is if you axiomatise the theories which one ends up with the kind of smallest neatest set of axioms I think all of those are dimensions of simplicity the kind of tricky thing is to know how to weight them when we're going to work it out but ideally what you want the best theory is the one that makes the best trade-off between minimising your commitments right which is becoming simpler and explaining as much as possible Uh, And we don't measure those things separately. We measure them together, right, in order to work out which is the better theory. Now, that's not a nice, clean, simple story. It's nothing as simple as zero, one or infinity. But it seems to me to, to do a better job of explaining what we're talking about.
2: Yeah. So the theist is going to say that's not a simple explanation of what simplicity is.
1: (laughs) No, that's very true. It wasn't, but that's, but that's okay. And I'm relying on some ideas about theory choice that um, I've borrowed from philosophy of science and kind of imported into philosophy of religion at this point, because I think that they're kind of the best accounts of theory choice that we've currently got.
0: If you think about Peter Boghossian's view about um, how to have impossible conversations and his, his book, um, A Manual for Creating Atheists, you know, he thinks that there's a certain way in which um, theists and atheists should, should talk that is more likely to lead to, to progress in the conversation. You know, often these sort of conversations can be uh, quite militant and neither side sees each other.
1: The really hard thing, that, but the thing that you need to try to do if you want to have productive conversations with people is to think yourself into their position. If you can figure out, enough about how they see the world that you start being able to predict what they're going to say you're a long way down the track of being able to have productive conversations and some of it is kind of simple some of it is just being civil and being interested and actually taking the time to read um, and talk with people who hold the views that are very different from your own Uh, and that I mean that kind of stuff uh, happens in some small corners of the internet and doesn't happen in lots of other corners of the internet. Uh, but I'm I'm all for kind of productive conversations. I don't like debates, the kinds of things where people get up and they do a set piece for half an hour, because there's no exchange in that. It's much more interesting to actually talk to people and um, draw out of them questions and comments and so on. I, and I think that that's that's the way that uh, certainly philosophers who are theists and, and naturalists discussing God should conduct themselves.
0: So in those conversations, have you seen moments of doubt uh, on both sides? In other words, where the theist says, I've held this view quite sincerely for a long time and you said something that creates doubt in my mind and maybe I'm wrong. And similarly, have you seen atheists say, maybe there's a God?
1: So. I haven't seen either of those things, but what you see a lot of is, oh, that's interesting. Um, Maybe my view about X isn't quite right. Um, And if you think about what goes into these days, a kind of typical book that's defending naturalism or um, theism, there are thousands of claims about controversial questions that go into it and very few of us are going to think oh i must be right about all of those claims i mean surely there's lots of things where my view lots of ways in which my view could be improved there are various ways in which i'm getting things wrong when you have these conversations one of the things that will often happen is people will say you know you say this and that but they don't fit very well together And you think, yeah that's right i need to go away and think about that
2: so on that note, here's a question. So suppose you have a rational, two rational persons, right? Two rational people. And one starts with a theistic view and one starts with an atheistic view. So these are, these are rational agents with infinite time on their hands. Are there arguments that you think should convince one of those sides? So I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think we
1: currently have any arguments that should convince either of them to budge. But that doesn't rule out there being arguments that we haven't been clever enough to discover yet that should do it. So that's really, that's my line on most of the kinds of arguments that there are. I wrote a fairly big book back in the, the last decade where I argued that there are no successful arguments on either side, but I made it very clear that what I meant was we don't currently, amongst the arguments that have been written down, so we've got sets of premises and conclusions, all of the ones we can examine, they're not persuasive. But whether... And and I wouldn't put my money on any of us finding an argument anytime soon that's going to be persuasive on either side either. But obviously, there's no way of ruling out that there might be such a killer argument on one side or the other. So, so are you it's... like a
2: pragmatic uh, agnostic? So you kind of think... For now, we couldn't know?
1: So, I don't think so. I, mean, I, the, I don't think that, the, that arguments are as important as theories. In fact, I think that what you say about the arguments is entirely determined by the theory that you hold. And we've already been over. I think when you do this comparison, that naturalism... My judgment is that naturalism does a better job than theism of managing all of the relevant evidence. You get more for less. You invest unless you get more explanation but it's a very complicated judgment and it's obvious that reasonable people can disagree about lots of the sub judgments that go into that overall judgment so I'm quite happy to think there are smart intelligent well-informed people who disagree with me about some of the particular judgments and about the, the judgment overall and We don't have anything else to fall back on. If one day we find the killer argument, then we will have something to fall back on. But I wouldn't count on that. My guess is that the situation will go on the way that it is. And people have to figure it out for themselves. That's that's just how lots of philosophy is i mean it's not like this view is rare in philosophy On most of the big questions questions about consciousness or freedom or rights or whatever we tend to think that there's a spectrum of views that reasonable people can hold and we've got no way we haven't yet found a way of kind of forcing all of the reasonable people to adopt one particular position I don't see why we should think that the question about God is any different from other philosophical questions in that respect.
0: So do you think there are degrees of reasonable views on this front? So we talked a bit about a kind of ordinary theistic model and then Jason raised a pantheism which doesn't, you know, doesn't commit him to certain attributes about God. But it seems um, that his pantheist view is slightly different from a naturalist view in that you know, if he says the universe is God, you know, one, one naturalist can just say, well, then why even talk about pantheism? just say there is the universe, um, which means the thing must be doing some work. In other words, it has some sort of collective consciousness or, you know, um, so when we're weighing up these accounts, you know, are there, are there ones where we go, well, that just seems beyond the scope
2: of reason and ought to be cut out? Mark wants right, to say, so that, only my view is beyond the scope of reason. All the others are mine. It's just mine.
1: <laughs> so, I think that what the pantheist wants to say is that um, there's this property of something like being worthy of worship. And that's a property that the universe has that naturalists don't recognize. And I'm happy to allow that we can reasonably disagree about that as well, so that pantheism won't get kind of ruled out. It's very hard to rule things out. I mean, the way that philosophy goes, things are kind of popular and then they're way out of vogue. And people think they'll never come back in, but they do. So there's a kind of, for the first time in a long time, maybe 100 years, idealism is becoming, metaphysical idealism is sort of generating some interest again. If you look at the history of philosophy, there's lots of this. So um, while while your own judgment might be that your position is actually the way you see it, when you kind of weigh it all up, it looks quite a bit better than the alternatives. Um, That's not gonna be a reason to think that reasonable people couldn't adopt a huge range of alternative views. And maybe, you just don't meet enough of them unless you kind of get out there and talk to people. But I mean, I'm talking about philosophers, talking about, you know, philosophers with different kinds of views, but there's an incredible range of views about what's worthy, worthy of worship or if there is such a thing out there amongst, you know, practicing academic philosophers.
2: So the non-philosopher is going to say, but then hold on, if there is this huge range of possible views and there's no knockdown reason for eliminating yep. any of them, then philosophers are philosophers making any progress at all, especially given this idea of, okay, a, a view loses loses fashionability and then later regains it? Um, is there any progress? So, okay, so now I'm going to say some more controversial
1: things. <laughs> Great. So, <again. laughs> so, So I think that what... I mean, the way that you should think about this is there's a bunch of disciplines. And for each discipline, there's a core of stuff that is agreed on by experts, right? There's a bunch of stuff that you just have to know to be competent in a discipline. And then they're kind of the stuff that people are currently working on. And they kind of know how they're going to solve these problems, but they don't know exactly yet what the solutions are. And then as you move further out, you get to these questions where, You've got no idea how to approach these questions. You don't know what the methods are that you should be using. You don't even really know whether there's a kind of answerable question there or not. Now you're in the domain of philosophy. So what philosophy is, is the domain where there's just no expert agreement on results or methods or anything like that. How does philosophy make progress? Well, it turns into other things, right? There was natural philosophy and then there's a kind of period uh, where some, a little bit of progress is made and suddenly you've got physics, right? I mean, just to take one example. Um, or logic, for quite a long while, was kind of on the cusp of becoming an independent discipline, but it's really only sometime after the Second World War that it clearly did. Now, you know, the Journal of Symbolic Logic is not a journal that philosophers publish in, um, any more than they publish in, you know, the Journal of Physics A or whatever. So my view about what philosophy is um, just kind of says, yes, philosophy is really hard. We kind of bash our heads against these problems. Sometimes it feels like forever, but sometimes we have successes and then we don't get any credit for that because now it's called psychology or physics (laughs) or chemistry. Um, But we shouldn't give up. Uh, and there are some areas that look kind of resistant to this. Like there's, I know normative stuff, it doesn't look like we're much further down the track of getting to agreement about where normative stuff comes from and so on than the Greeks were. And that's kind of frustrating, but, you know.
2: I really like that answer. I think that's a, a very, a very elegant answer.
1: controversial though very i don't think many philosophers will like that answer but that's my answer
0: i mean in, in some senses as you say that the progress happens by certain things becoming incontrovertible and no longer of interest to in philosophers so philosophers don't like to argue about things where we can get to a known output you know we say well as you said that's now the physicists can can deal with that we're going to look at the unknown and so we're these sort of uh explorers in space you know kind of looking out for the stuff that, that we don't understand yet. And there's still a lot we don't understand. Um, but that's where the fun is, right?
1: Right. And it's important, I mean, the, the way that I started out, by thinking in particular about stuff that's on the edges of disciplines that there already are. One of the changes in philosophy recently is that lots more philosophers will have another degree and they'll actually have some expertise in a discipline. Like you know, philosophers of physics these days don't sit in an armchair they go out and talk to physicists and they talk to them about the problems that are the boundary problems at the moment, the questions where you know, we, we just don't know what to do with these questions. We don't know. We don't even know whether they'll ever be answered by physics or not.
0: Yeah. I mean, I suppose there's been a bit of a, a move in that way with regards to ethics. So just thinking about, um, you know, people's intuitions, traditionally philosophers have sat in an armchair and said, well, we assume that people have this intuitive view. And then you have experimental philosophers going around and surveying people to find out, well, what do they actually believe? Um, and that this sort of interesting question about, should philosophers be doing empirical work uh, or should our work always be you know, more abstract?
1: Philosophers have often made c- claims about what ordinary people think. I think that we should do research to find out what ordinary people think, right? And so I'm all for um, experimental philosophy, going out and and getting results where the results are relevant, right? So uh, it's pretty, I think that mm, it's dangerous to make generalizations about what people think. But it's particularly dangerous to do it if you don't have any data.
2: If you go down that route, um, you, you might reduce philosophy to a question of popularity. So which views are the most popular views? Well, those are correct. Um, and we don't think philosophy should be decided um, on popularity. We think that it should be decided on some sort of rational, um, you know, that people's views should be delimited by what's rational rather than just what people think. So
1: I wasn't thinking about deciding ethics that way. I was thinking about just the range of opinion that can be reasonably held by people. Um, You sort of think nobody could believe that, and yet actually it turns out, if you go and explore that distant land over there, there are lots of people who believe it and they seem to be quite reasonable. You just weren't imagining the other things that they believe that go along with it. It's true that we are never going to decide normative questions by popularity polls, right? So uh, in particular, the questions that we're going to answer by doing experimental philosophy on kind of ethical intuitions are not going to be the normative questions. But that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be legitimate questions that we can probe using that technique.
0: So what are the the areas in in philosophy of religion where you feel like there are open questions that still need to be discovered. The sort of the next book that you'd like to work on.
1: So the, I'm actually planning that the next book that I write won't be in philosophy of religion. It will be, but it will bear on philosophy of religion. So I've been thinking about arguments about the existence of God forever, um, And I would like to write a book about the theory of argument that I've come to on the basis of all these years of trying to deal with, arguments about the existence of god uh, i think it'll be crazy uh, i don't think that anybody's going to like it but that's what i want to do next um, that's so that's that's sort of from the point of view of if you're interested in philosophy of religion that's kind of disappointing because that's not where i'm planning to go next here's something I, else that i would like to do another crazy project which oh, i don't know what i would like to do is a history of atheism uh, a long history. I want to know why atheism emerged in France in the um, early 18th century and how the what what happened between the year 1000 and the year sort of 1829 or whatever that sorry 1729 or whatever that made it possible for atheism to emerge so so 1697 Thomas Eikenhead was as a student at the University of Edinburgh, was put to death for public affirmation of atheism. By 1770, there's a doctor in the UK who puts his name to a pamphlet defending atheism and nobody touches him. The world changed enormously in a small space of time, but there's a very long run up. And I would like to understand what happened in Europe, the UK and Europe. that made possible this transition. Now, I've got no training as a historian, so I've got no idea why I'm thinking about doing that, but that's something else that I would like to do.
0: I mean, on this front, it's like that views on atheism have shifted very dramatically in the last 20 years. Um, You know, that it's become, I'd say less popular to be a theist on on campuses nowadays. Uh, That being religious is um, going to be more the subject of ridicule than being an atheist. Um, that I think in Sweden they polled people under the age of 25 and found that there were no theists. Um, so there's been a sort of groundswell support for atheism recently, um, and that's an interesting question as to why.
1: And, I mean, that's true even in the United States. The people under 30, there's, uh, there are very few churchgoers compared to the number of churchgoers that there used to be in the united states so yes in the in the west if you can call it that i don't know what's the right term for it but in the wealth in i don't know where maybe it's the former colonial powers or whatever i don't know what's the right term for it but atheism seems to be increasing the census in australia there were three percent who were not christian in 1900 the next thesis, will, the next census will be the first one where more than 50% of people are not Christian in Australia. So um, the, the change is really quite dramatic and it's happening everywhere in um, a certain part of the world. right? Uh, and, it, and it's interesting, there are lots of hard questions about why that's happening and what explains it and so on, that would be a job for somebody else, right? I mean, I'd love to read books that had good stories to tell about that too. Um, yeah, um,
2: I can, I can cool. imagine views shifting now as well, um, given that we've gone through a world-altering event with COVID-19. Um, <clears throat> and I can imagine a lot of people changing their minds about the existence of God based on some view of evil, that something bad has happened, uh, which we didn't think was consistent with the idea of a benevolent God. Um, and people's views might shift because of, of, of a far reaching event.
1: That's true. And we did witness some of that. So after the second world war, um, I think that uh, in Jewish populations, the Holocaust really did lead to a loss of faith for a lot of people and I assume that that was true amongst Christians as well, uh, and especially having the two two wars, two big wars so close to one another. Um, but even in the twentieth century, there are kinds of ups and downs. So in the United States, there was something of a resurgence in Christianity during the fifties and into the early sixties. And I don't know what you put that down to, maybe it's to do maybe that's to do with the Cold War and the kind of identification of being an American with being Christian that somehow was stitched together at the time. I although there's a kind of you know from the beginning of the nineteenth century to now, it's mostly a kind of upward trend for atheism in the countries that we're talking about. I don't know that I'd be that confident in predicting what things will look like in 50 years. Uh, um, we're weird creatures,
0: is what I would say. Do you think that, that um, the sort of rise in atheism has led to a different kind of vacuum? So religious people tend to not just have commitments to deities, but also commitments towards certain moral attitudes. Um, and you know, atheists can have uh, you know, a series of other moral commitments. They can be Kantians or utilitarians. But it seems to be that, on campuses at least, there's a sort of um, rise in atheism and then a sort of a replacement theology that happens, some other kind of belief in an original sin, um, and uh, that a lot of religious language kind of gets used without belief in deities. Um, and that original so, sin might be something like, as you said, being a colonizer. You know? Um, so you know, South Africa and Australia are both colonies of, of the UK, uh, and maybe there's a view that being a colonizer is to have original sin.
1: And religious people often say that there's kind of nothing original in atheists. We just pick stuff, we just borrow stuff from uh, religion. We stole our arguments from the disputatios that the medievals engaged in. And lots of our ideas are just kind of reheated versions of religious ideas. I I don't think that's right, but uh, it might well be that it's um, much harder to have this large-scale repudiate, complete repudiation of its kind of pre-existing religious beliefs than you might have thought. And maybe there is something to the idea that, that you find these patterns of thought that aren't really consistent with naturalism, uh, but are consistent with at least kind of temporarily walking away from whatever the kind of predominant religions were I, naturalism's quite a, i think still quite an extreme position and i don 't think there are lots of naturalists out there in fact there 's lots of data that suggests for example that that even amongst the Swedes, there are many people who are definitely not naturalists even though they 're not Christians or and even though they claim they're not religious
0: either. Yeah. So it seems that there's a, there might be a rise of atheists, but they're not naturalists. So they might say, I don't believe yep. in God, but I believe that when I ask the universe for things, it provides and I can pray to it. Um, or of course there are yep. angels, um, you know, but I don't believe in God. Um, so it's not clear that there's an overlap between naturalists and atheists. Totally.
1: Uh, I'm sure there isn't. I, I suspect that, uh, <sighs> most, maybe even most of the people who call themselves atheists are not naturalists. Hmm. I'm not 100% sure about that because the survey data on atheists is just terrible. Um, Censuses and surveys don't distinguish properly between um, atheists, agnostics, um, people who have no religion, people who are not in any sense spiritual and so on. I mean, there's a whole lot of dimensions here and we just don't have the data. So I don't, and and who's naturalist? There's no census in the world yet that's had a box that you can tick that says naturalist. So so it's kind of hard to tell. And Even if you had the box, people probably wouldn't know whether they should tick it or not, right?
2: (laughs) So really by atheist, you just mean the view that theism is false, right? Yes. Um, Yes. Whereas a a naturalist would be a lot stronger than that.
1: Yes, that's right. So
2: a naturalist is going to say something like,
1: at least as far as the causal stuff goes, all there is is the universe. I mean, that's a kind of simple way. I mean, there's all kinds of bells and whistles you can put on it, but that's kind of roughly it.
2: Uh, Would a naturalist have things to say about, you're saying all there is is the universe, but would, Could the universe have non-physical attributes, like psychological attributes?
0: So, uh,
1: okay, so this is a good question. Uh, I mean, there are all these disputes about who are the real naturalists, just like there are all these kind of disputes about who are the real atheists and so on. And you might want to have a generic term for naturalism, but what I think of as my naturalists think that you don't get mind except well into the history of the universe and it's local. The only things that have minds are organisms or maybe things that are subsequently created by organisms. Right? There's a long period of evolution. That's, that's it. That's it. That's all the minds that there are. Um, and I think another part of my naturalism will be the idea that there's nothing that's worthy of worship. There's nothing that's intrinsically worthy of worship. And I would put all of that into the naturalism Uh, So it's not quite um, just the universe is all there is, but the universe is all there is. And here are some highly salient properties that the universe has as well that I would fold into naturalism. But I might not want to sort of make it a definition that if you, if you're, um, so I go backwards and forwards on this. Pantheists, should we call them naturalists or not? Um, If they think that there's a kind of world mind Mostly I say no, but I don't know what hangs on it really.
2: Well, Mark thinks it's beyond the pale of rationality.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I suppose it just, what seems interesting about the view is that it requires some kind of commitment to a supernatural thing. The idea that there is uh, either just one entity and that all of us are interconnected um, and that just doesn't seem to track with our real world experience. Um, although, you know, it sort of has the nicer new age, gooey, warm feeling you could get from it, I suppose.
2: Well, you don't have to hold that there's something supernatural in the sense that, um, the pantheist thinks that the physical universe and God are identical. And if, if we really take identity seriously, then what you're saying is that there's no properties of the physical universe that, aren't matched by properties of God and vice versa. So if you're talking about something supernatural, well, there can't be anything supernatural in the pantheistic view that's not natural because, well, the natural universe is identical with God.
1: Right, but then there's this question about the distribution of mind, for example. And if you agree that the only things that have minds are organisms and stuff that they make, well, then the universe turns out not to have a mind. And, and, and so... If, kind of by adding a, a little extra to the definition of naturalism, it will turn out that pantheism isn't um, a type of naturalism. But I agree um, that it's really not clear what's going to hang on having precise definitions at this point. And there's a lot of angst around certain parts of the internet about who, who the atheists are. Are they the people who say <laughs> there's no God or the people who just lack the belief that God exists. I'd rather kind of let people use the words however they like and just be clear what I mean when I'm using the words.
0: Well, Graham, thank you very much for an absolutely electric conversation. Um, this has been uh, thoroughly enjoyable. And uh, the idea of your, your book on the nature of arguments, uh, I'd love to chat about that further if you're up for a, another conversation with us. I think, you know, philosophy really can do with looking in on itself um, and trying to understand how, how it works as a discipline of thought is you know really entertaining and useful for us